0: A bit lit, celebrating research and creativity of all kinds. Phoenix, hi, how are you doing?
1: I'm fine, Andy, how are you? I'm
0: good too, thank you. Really delighted to have you here. Um, We start our films by asking contributors to introduce themselves and tell us about your work. So would you mind doing that, please?
1: Okay, so my name is Phoenix Andrews. My current pronouns are they, them. I say current because who knows what will be happening by the time this film goes out anything is possible um i um i my twitter bio used to say failed polymath or crap polymath at various times so i guess i do a lot of things it doesn't say that anymore because there's too much to fit in ironically (laughs) um so i would say i'm a writer researcher performer irritant probably on a variety of topics including politics, fandom, internet culture. I mean, if if trans rights issues, but that's not something I like massively want to talk about all the time. It's just they're under attack at the moment. So that sort of happens. At any given time, you will probably see the most chaotic streams of content coming from me on various platforms. Like, like I know my brand is Ed Balls and Bright Colours, but other than that, Uh, I think I confuse people because I don't strategize, and so I've been on social media since social media was first a thing right from forums onwards and I've been on Twitter since 2007 so yeah you you end up seeing stuff about wrestling about football about buttocks about cats goats (laughs) Um, goats or ghosts <laughs> or goats yeah I'm not really interested in supernatural paranormal type stuff but definitely like goats and I was quite excited in the early days of all this zoom stuff when people started having goats on their zoom calls because there's a farm that will let you hire goats I was, I was this is good they, they've caught on to what people really want it's not just the cats it's not just the dogs it's not just the cute little furry ponies. It is, in fact, goats. Um,
0: great, Phoenix. I think we've made about 150 a bitlit films since COVID broke out, but that was the most wide-ranging of introductions <laughs> that we've had so far. Because
1: on- other people are professional, <laughs> whereas I'm professionally unprofessional.
0: Well, that we love you for that, and that's why you're here. So that's fantastic. Um, uh, I don't quite know where to start. I love the fact that you're, you know, you're very strictly, despite despite the, the wide range of things that you do, I like the fact that you're not interested in the supernatural. So when we talk about goats, we're talking about living goats, and you're not interested in goat ghosts or ghosts <laughs> ghost of goats. I don't know how to say that, but, um, you know, at least we, have, we found some parameters for you, so that's a good start.
1: Yeah, there's something concrete in there.
0: <laughs> I definitely feel we should start with Ed Balls and Bright Colours, which, if I remember rightly, that's a Simon and Garfunkel song, right? I think it's... <laughs> To water shit down, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> tell us more about. I mean, is that one thing or is that two things? Ed and. I mean,
1: it is two things, but okay. I guess. It, I mean, I mean, obviously, there's Princess Diana as well that we could get to at some point, okay. but, but the, the the three strands that people might sort of know me for at a glance. So I guess people might know me from mm-hmm. academic stuff, uh, past and present, where where it might be the stuff that I used to do and that my PhD is on, which is around open access policy and how people have reacted to it. And which is essentially about not really about open access and is about how you throw another policy or intervention into people's very busy lives. And you put a load of technology into people's lives, but they already have lots of things going on and lots of technology going on. I shall just have a sip of water. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so chaos ensues. And yet, a lot of the research about policy implementation doesn't really kind of account for that. So, that's what my PhD is about. So, some people would know me from that and from me being a qualified librarian. But then, my academic stuff now is more about internet cultures and about politics and fandom, which mm-hmm. gets you to Ed, ed Balls because i love ed balls which started as a semi-ironic thing and is now quite sincere but it sent me down a whole research path which has been very useful okay is what Listen, should- I'm writing a book
0: If I could just, if I can just jump in, we have an international audience, so I feel we should explain who Ed Balls is. So the first thing to say, he's a professional dancer. What else?
1: (laughs) He's a professional dancer, cook and broadcaster. Um, Yes, he was. uh, He was Minister for Children, Schools and Families in the UK under Gordon Brown. And then he was Shadow Chancellor. Um, And for years before that, he was quite a serious economist. Um, but he ended up on Strictly Come Dancing, which is known as Dancing with the Stars in the US. Actually, surprisingly, a lot of people internationally do know about Ed Balls. They just don't know who he is or what he originally did because of Ed Balls Day being a thing. And this year, 2021, sorry if you watch this after 2021, or even if it goes out after 2021, who can tell, um, was the 10th anniversary of Ed Balls Day, which was what happened when Ed Balls was in Asda, in Castleford, looking at some beef, I think, um, as the story went. Um, maybe some steak, I don't know, for a barbecue. Um, and he somebody had told him in his team that he should search for his own name on Twitter to see what was being said because it was 2011, so normies had just started to get on to Twitter, sort of. 2009, 2010. Certainly the 2010 election was the first big UK Twitter election, a bit like the first Obama one was for the US. And um, he accidentally tweeted his name instead of searching for it. And it became a meme and he's basically embraced it and done stuff every year for Ed Ball's Day. And when he left politics, he could have just been boring, but he embraced all of his hinterland that he had before that people didn't really know about and did lots of fun things. And is also a professor at King's College London and a research fellow at Harvard. So I think he's still doing the serious stuff, but I kind of like that you can have all that chaos in one person and (laughs) that's probably, that's probably why I feel a great attachment to him. Yeah. And Bright Colours kind of goes with that, you know, strictly come dancing, Um, being more of yourself. I suppose that's why I'm professionally unprofessional because I spent a lot of time early in my life trying desperately to fit in and trying new identities on to try and see if that group of people would accept me or that group of people would accept me and then people telling me I was too much Um, and then you know just trying to be a normal person basically and being an utter failure at it and then a few years ago I got hit by a car at 40 miles an hour, which gives you a 90% chance of dying, only a 10% chance of survival. That's the way you're supposed to say it around, but you know. Um, And I just thought, oh, everything that I've kind of suppressed or tried to create a sense of brand, a sense of professionalism, a sense of conformity. There's literally no point I could have died So I got a rainbow tattooed on my arm, well, a rainbow band all the way around my arm, um, which is partly about LGBTQ stuff, it's that rainbow, but also about just embracing everything and being able to show that to people openly and radically in my work and in my personal life that you shouldn't have to hive bits of yourself off.
0: Yeah, that's really inspiring and um and exciting um i I sort of share some similar ways of thinking about um about things both through family background and also myself having kind of random near-death experience it does it does change how you think about yourself and i think in academia in particular people feel very stuck in the idea of a career path and are constantly worrying about what they'll be doing in 10 or 20 years time and that sort of fixes them into not doing things now Um, and i really liberated by not thinking that way and just wanting to enjoy what I do at the moment and um, I'm really inspired by what you're saying about being more of yourself Um, and I can't think of a yourself I would rather you be (laughs) than yours Uh, so that's that's really fabulous. Um, I wanted to make sure we go back to Ed Balls um, because you very generously introduced him but I'd like to hear also um, about your work and kind of how um, I mean the way I think of where Ed fits in your work is that he kind of becomes a an exemplar, a kind of um, a way of thinking about what the internet in particular does to um, how we think about people, how we think about ourselves. So I'd, I'd really like to hear about, you know, where does Ed fit for you just in terms of your unprofessional, professional work?
1: Yeah, he, he does do that. I mean, he shows that you can be presented one way on the internet and people people on the internet can sort of decide who and what you are, and you can either lean into that or resist that or embrace the bits of it that you like and kind of shut down the bits of it you don't like, because Ed Ball's Day kind of came along in the period where people could actually talk back to politicians. And I suppose, like, the 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 apex of my own fandom of politics was the 2010 election, just because it, it was so mad i mean because because obviously we ended up with the coalition and therefore like endless conservative governments in the uk but it was the first time or certainly in my lifetime that we'd had such an unpredictable result nobody knew it was going to happen you know david dimbleby who was presenting all the election coverage in the uk at the time was up for seemingly a week without stopping and so, were a lot of people on the internet, including me. Um, and there were so many different characters involved, and it was literally like watching a, a reality show or a soap opera, and people were reacting to it in that way. Um, and Ed Balls was sort of part of that, and how people reacted to that generation of politicians, they wrote fanfic about them. Um, and it sent me down a whole thing about, oh, it, it can't just be just me and this group of people who are being fans of politics. This, I've been involved in other fandoms since I was, you know, what, 13, 14 in music, comedy, film, whatever, mm-hmm. sport. And they're reacting the same way as people doing that. And there's different levels of fandom. So not everyone's gonna write fanfic, but people have got loads of books in their bookcase about their favorite politicians. They're desperate to defend their favorite online whether that's a historical person like churchill or whether it's somebody current or they're obsessed with hating that person which is anti-fandom you know they just want to go on, and on about never trump or whatever and so it 2017 election in the uk and it was the big year of jeremy corbyn and people loving or hating him um but much more love i think at that point because he was new to people and there was lots of joy and memes around it it wasn't really necessarily about politics it's about culture it's him being at Glastonbury and being this figure online that translated to offline and big rallies and events and so I wrote an article for (coughs) for Discover Society this is sort of two years into my PhD or 18 months into my PhD about politics fandom and it did start with Ed Balls because that year was the year I met Ed for like the second time, his his first book came out. His autobiography. Because I suppose it was like two years since he'd left Parliament. Um, he did a couple of events uh, at a book festival or ideas festival in York, and I went along and chatted to him. And I said, "Oh, Ed, why won't you follow me back on Twitter?" And then uh, he he said, oh, all right, I will. And then he signed my copy of the book and we had selfies and then he did follow me back and we've sort of been in conversation ever since. And I've kept doing stuff about politics and fandom ever since, which is why I'm writing a book about it. And I realised it wasn't just happening in the UK or in the UK and the US. It's happening everywhere and it's happened through history since politics has been, since, since, you know, Romans and the Greeks and all of that. And then since celebrity has become more of a thing, and we're talking sort of early modern onwards, so you probably be bang into that. Um <laughs> that's how we say it technically. Um, but you know, since 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 celebrity and celebritization of particular figures, not just the royals in the particular country, has been a thing, um, the politics fandom has kind of followed it and as new technology developments have come in that's intensified it and when you mesh all of that with internet cultures and the sort of stand cultures that you get around musicians and the intensity of that and the kind of ebbs and flows of how people conduct themselves on and offline you end up with something very exciting and in various countries there's quite a lot of interesting stuff happening where they kind of weaponize fandom in a way Mm. so you know, with with all of the uh, democracy protests in Hong Kong and the quite oppressive, serious things that have gone on there, the Chinese government have got fangirls of idols, which is a big thing in East Asia, you know, across East Asian countries, you, you know, actors and pop stars who are celebrities are idols and they sort of treating in a slightly different way to how we treat stars here they got the fangirls to write things online, to turn up to events South Korean elections they have fans whether it's organic or not I don't know, singing songs about presidential candidates and all this kind of thing in Brazil um, the Bolsonaro supporters are uh, quite dismissive of people who support Lula on the left, or just anybody who's, also, who's against Bolsonaro. And whenever people on the left will post stories on Facebook or on other platforms that are quite similar to the stories the left tells here, because everyone's always telling stories in politics, because politics is about emotions. But, you know, when somebody tells an anecdote about something that's happened to someone, and this is why you shouldn't vote for this person, or you should vote for that person, the Bolsonaro supporters call that fanfics. Leftist fanfics. Wow. And I was like, well, obviously, like Bolsonaro supporters are generally quite awful people, or at least the hardcore ones are, you know, and he's an awful man. But to a certain extent, it's true. They're telling the story of the politics they want to see, that it's, it's their headcanon, the literatures that they are creating. Yeah. And you get that a lot here. Like, there were quite a lot of bloggers who came up through the Jeremy Corbyn era and the Brexit era and people who were telling stories about left-wing politics, about Jeremy Corbyn, about who benefits and who doesn't from different types of government, The, the importance of narrative has never been more obvious because it's so It's so much bottom up as well as top down and yet the top down narratives couldn't crush those little grassroots ones, as you can see uh, with the 2019 election in the UK where, you know, Boris Johnson and get Brexit done and all of those kind of Brexit phrases really help them to win and even at the moment when you can see that the government in the UK has not been very good at handling Covid outside of vaccines they're still able to tell the stories that they want to tell and have a bounce in the polls.
0: Yeah that's absolutely fascinating and incredibly comprehensive and I can't wait to read your book so do hurry up and write it. Um, Do you mind mind if I get you to tell us a bit more about it feels like there's a kind of interesting tension in what in what you've said, in that you quite rightly talked about the kind of longevity of this issue from the Greek and Romans through the early modern period upwards, um, and then you also gave us a kind of a snapshot of what it looks like from a contemporary international scene. And you stressed the importance of the 2010 election. And it does it does feel like we are living in a kind of post 2010 world. Still, we still sort of have we have the political party that election. the dominant political party that that election gave us and as you say there was that week where we really didn't know what was happening this big soap opera about where the liberal democrats would go in terms of coalition um and right from the start of that coalition decisions were being made about universities which are only really beginning to bite and have a real effect right now so it does feel like we're in this kind of post 2010 world so on the one hand you're telling us Long, long, long long history, but at the same time, it sounds like you're also telling us there's something very distinctive happening right now. Have I got that right? And can you tell us? Yeah, you have.
1: And I think there's there's sort of two things that happened more or less at the same time, which is the financial crash in 2008, which was the end for Labour and Gordon Brown in this country, and the beginning of the end really for the Democrats in America. Um, And a lot of, um, and obviously it caused problems worldwide Um, and the rise of social media and not just the rise of social media, but over that period, people getting onto social media, who perhaps wouldn't have been interested in social media for the same reasons that people were before.
0: Um,
1: And since 2015, 2016, that's become ever more prominent, I think. So um, there's a thing that I caught in a... I want to say wanky. Am I allowed to say wanky on this? Um, that That's a bit like that. Um, that. That I call the digital dissensus.
0: You've already sworn once, so there's going to be a language warning with the film anyway. So oh,
1: OK. You can, you you can, can always beat me right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's a thing that I call the digital dissensus um, that I've written about. So basically... Um, you had the post-war consensus, which is how you built the welfare state and collaboration between countries, people deciding never wanted World War II or similar to happen again, but also, you know, broken populations <laughs> in the countries that were involved in that war yeah. and needing to rebuild and having new, have new settlements that just changed people's politics. And obviously increased increased um voter franchise you know different people were able to vote after world war ii um so it changed the political landscape and that held for quite a long time if you look at the politics certainly in the global north between then and then thatcher and reagan that consensus was kind of holding for quite a long time and then it obviously ruptured it stopped working anymore the 1970s were chaotic and punk and uh, the winter of discontent and the three-day week and you end up with thatcher and reagan and the cold war liberals and uh, that's what i call depending on who i'm talking to i call it it's it's the liberal consensus or it's a neoliberal consensus but either way that's the kind of politics we had we were trying to get developing states in the world and states that were post-colonial there's a lot of post-colonial rather than decolonial stuff I think it's a distinction um we were trying to get everybody to have a western-style liberal democracy everything was about free markets individualization pull yourself up by your bootstraps a bit of a broken version of the American dream um, no such thing as a society when new labor came along obviously they brought quite a lot of good social stuff but economically they still kind of held to a lot of what Thatcherism was and that was the same in a lot of countries and then of course the crash broke that and we're seeing the fallout ever since and so the digital decensus is the the, the, the period the, the Gramscian period where you know we're in a post we're into interregnum nothing Nothing is actually settled yet. And we're actually in a really long unsettled period, I think, because it's been a long time since 2008. And the coalition period sort of tried to patch together a bit of old and new, I think, in the UK. You know, it tried to have... uh, It tried to go, oh, we're doing innovation and digital things and some nice social progressive stuff and hug a hoodie and big society but it's also a lot about austerity and brutal immigration policy and I think you saw that with Obama and people like that as well you know it's it's really a very interim kind of politics where you're trying to manage the situation of the fact that the world has changed and people don't want things to have changed they sort of do want change they want change they want hope but they don't want their own situation to change people are dealing with a lot of ontological insecurity at the moment. And so in the, in the digital dissensus, nobody agrees on anything or a lot substantively, and what rises to the top, it's all very fragmented, and what rises to the top are the loudest voices, but they aren't necessarily the biggest groups. Yeah. They might be the groups with the most institutional power, certainly on certain issues, but, and that's what drives a lot of the culture war stuff the media in the uk is particularly poisonous for that um but it's it the, the the digital side of things really intensifies it and so a lot of people joined social media around 2015 16 because they really loved or hated trump or they really loved or hated brexit or they were really really obsessed with climate so you've got a lot of people it's partly generational you know a lot of those people are older Who maybe didn't have social media before, or they did have social media, but they only had people they knew on social media. So if you went on to that generation's Facebook page or whatever, everybody was people they knew from work or went to school with, or was their actual friends and family. There are people that they had direct connections to. If they had a bit more than that, it might have been to do with their their business, and they had some people that they thought would be useful business contacts. But suddenly they had. A thing they really cared about, and therefore their network grew exponentially. But they perhaps didn't have the years of the the fifteen or more years of being online before that. Without, you know, they didn't have the, they didn't understand the culture of the internet and how things work. And I think that that's kind of led to a lot of the noise because people yeah. don't know how to behave.
0: Yeah, so kind of digital literacy, I think, is what you're talking to us about. And um, I, I don't really try and avoid the phrase social media. It just feels like a really odd description of a lot of different kinds of, of platforms. And I think you're pointing to a, uh, for us towards how the word social is really unhelpful, that um, something like Facebook is really a, an extension of already existing social relationships, whereas something <laughs> like Twitter, I, I mean, I often say to students, Twitter is basically publishing. Um, you've got no idea who will read it. It will go out there into the public world. You will lose control of it. You have no ownership of um, where it, where it will go. Um, and that may be true for Facebook these days as well. I don't use Facebook, so I'm not sure. But it certainly felt like in its earliest days, it was about a kind of inward-looking, pre-existing, non-digital community. Whereas Twitter um, and other kinds of platforms are very much about essentially broadcasting and publishing. Um, and as you say, people are coming into that world. Um, thinking it will behave like another another kind of form, or even just like a newspaper, and not having the kind of um, experience to navigate the kinds of information that then is coming at them, and that they themselves are um, continuing, furthering, putting out there further.
1: Well, it's sort of sh- it's sort of shifting again now, partly to do with um, how things are presented to you algorithmically. So obviously, we know on Facebook people were presented with things based on the algorithm to show them more of what they liked or more of what they engaged with, the things that they were able to get angry about and, uh, you know, obviously the things that are presented to you on Instagram or any of those things or, or, or um, Facebook, is a, Facebook, YouTube is a radicalization vector we know that there's been quite a lot of work published on the fact that the autoplay function but also just the recommended videos can send you quite a long way away from where you originally started while being superficially on the same topic so you can be slowly drawn into things Um, and we've seen that people can be drawn from very light vaguely right-wing contrarian stuff right all the way to the far right quite quickly and the same with Uh, other topics just getting harder and harder material Um, but but now there's newer platforms that are entirely driven by the algorithm so you can follow people on your favorites on TikTok but that's not really the point of what you look at what you look at is your for you page and that's driven entirely by your likes dislikes what you've engaged with what you've watched what you've searched for the most so it's not really about somebody being a star because you follow them. It's somebody being a star because their content, content has engaged people and come up. And it's not really, things can go viral without needing to have a big person find it and promote it. Yeah. It's all very algorithmically driven. And it's a different way of looking at how you present yourself online. And yeah. um, the other the other main shift that's happening at the moment is towards closed social media so whether it's within a public platform like Facebook or Twitter but private groups and private group chats or things like WhatsApp, Signal, Discord servers people are having these conversations that are uh, not necessarily with people that they know so it's not like the old social um, And it's not necessarily, it's not like a chat room in the olden days where anybody could drop in. You know, you kind of have to know about the communities to be added to them. They're they're often quite secret. And people are doing some very interesting organizing on there and minorities are able to have important conversations, but also transparency has disappeared. And there's big arguments around right now about, what happens when you de-platform controversial figures from the main platforms? Um, For some, they go broke and disappear, which is, you know, Milo. (laughs) (laughs) Or to a certain extent, Katie Hopkins. You know, their entire shtick relies on them putting their stuff into the faces of people who aren't actually that hardcore and have no intention of becoming that hardcore. And therefore, as soon as you take them off YouTube or you take them off Twitter or you take them off Facebook and Instagram, their financial streams go out of the window. Nobody's going to pay into their Patreon. Um, Patreon will probably kick their account off anyway. Whereas the far right people, your Tommy, proper far right people, rather than people who play on that to talk to mainstream people, your Tommy Robinsons and... Um extremist groups uh, like Patriotic Alternatives so on, quite a lot of them are banned in the UK. They're using Telegram, they're using Signal. There's no content moderation. And even people who are quite well-known or used to be well-known but have been kicked off big platforms or no longer feel like they can post what they want on the big platforms because quite rightly the content moderation will take them down, have um, moved to things like Substack which is effectively taking us back to blogging. So they're publishing, but Substack still claims to be the dumb pipe. You know, at the beginning of blogging and all of that side of participatory media, if we're avoiding social media, new media, what people used to call it back, but we can't call it new anymore. But, um, Web 2.0, all of it sounds very dated. Back in the beginning of that, there were a lot of arguments, particularly, in the US and UK about platform regulation and whether or not platforms that hosted content were media companies or technology telecommunications companies. And so the law still in these countries uh, acts as if they're telecommunications Mm -hmm. companies. So they're a pipe like the telephone line that has no control over what happens end to end, they're just providing the means of you doing it. And it's becoming more and more obvious that that is untenable. So platforms that have been around quite a long time tend to have platform rules and content moderation that they don't necessarily apply all that evenly or all that well. And if you're well-known, then it's easier to get away with a lot of stuff. Um, some things are alg- Some decisions are algorithmically decided. If you tweet certain things, it will automatically be removed. Or if you post certain things and somebody reports it, the algorithm will make the decision that that's inappropriate, whether that's death threats or pictures of female presenting nipples uh, <laughs> as, as the phrase goes. Um, and Facebook have an oversight board that made decisions about Trump. But uh, the newer platforms are kind of wanting to avoid content moderation, and that's part of their selling point. Mm-hmm. Clubhouse and TikTok and Substack just don't really want to... They, they talk; they use free speech as a way of kind of getting around it and, and saying that they're just about technology. But the material that's on a lot of these unmoderated platforms is horrific and it is publishing as you say and it's kind of sad that at the same time as we're trying to have these difficult conversations about where the limits of free speech are and what platforms should be doing to keep minorities safe and people scream about mob rule but often the most powerful mums are people who already had institutional power and not coming from the bottom. It's often driven by major media figures and celebrities. Book publishers are having a sort of generational war about whether publishers should be publishing certain people and younger and more precarious people who work in publishing may not want to work on books by Sean Hannity or Donald Trump or JK Rowling because they don't agree with these views and they don't think they should have to work on this stuff. They have strong ethics and the publishers are shouting about free speech and publishers should always always be able to publish things and Julie Purchill will always find another publisher even if it's a literal fascist. Actually she's been turned down. It's all about the reputation of the publisher and not about ethics. Yeah. I'm sort of having some quite long overdue conversations right now about free speech and what the role of a publisher is and what literature is meant to do and who has a right to be published where.
0: Yeah, this is all really powerful, Phoenix. I'm, I'm really grateful for where you've taken us. And I want to make sure before we finish, we move on to one of the other topics that you so generously Gave us, but I love the idea of a headcanon of people kind of creating kinds of literatures that they want to engage with. And now you've brought us onto the other other kind of side of that, the starting point of that, which is about who is producing those literatures, who is enabling them to be put out there in the first place. And I love the idea of 2008, 2015, and I guess probably now 2020, 2021 as being really core moments for thinking about the rise of social media. And I've never really thought about social media and the financial crash together. So I'm really. Grateful to you for getting us to think about about that. You used the phrase the an interim kind of politics, and I wonder if that's sort of where COVID forces politicians. You know, whatever their their normal pol- political uh, way of working might have been, it must feel like COVID for all the kind of long term effects it's going to have. It's going to be an even bigger version of 2008, I presume. But it also must also must feel like a short term interim period of having to reorganize everything. Um, so I really value everything you've given us there. And at the start of the film, you gave us so many different topics and it's not often I turn down the chance to talk about goats or buttocks, but we, <laughs> we have a long going um, series on professional wrestling on this platform. So um, I'm particularly keen to take up your offer of thinking about, about wrestling. Can you tell us a bit more about, um, your relationship with wrestling? Uh, is this part of your writing work or is this um, something that you're, you're doing as a practice, as a sport, as a technique? What, what, where are you at with it?
1: Well, where where I am with it is before, before COVID, BC. <laughs> <only> BC. <laughs> um, in the early modern COVID period, um, I was doing some professional wrestling because I'd always wanted to train in it. But I'd heard bad things, rightly, about the local wrestling schools. Um, they were quite expensive and difficult for me to get to, but the culture is quite cis-het. And obviously over COVID, we, a lot of stories, Me Too stories came out about professional wrestling. So I guess I was right to be wary. The things that I'd heard from them speaking to female and queer and people of colour wrestlers, um, yeah, it was all true. Um, but a... Artist, a trans artist called Ro Hardacre had got some funding to train queer people in wrestling with a wrestler, Hannah Lawless. And I was training every week and then we had to stop and we hadn't done that many weeks. So I, I was learning how to do holds and throws and I was very excited and then it all stopped. And then uh, in the early period of, of, of this COVID, stuff but we were working out first lockdown we were sort of working out what we were going to do we didn't know how long it was going to last and we were trying to deal with life I couldn't really write anything Mm -hmm. I had lots of writing I needed to do my PhD book projects all kinds of stuff I couldn't so I made a couple of films for the 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 social group that existed online briefly for a period after our wrestling training ended it sort of died out because we hadn't known each other long enough and we didn't have enough other stuff in common but we made we were asked to make a wrestling promo so I did that and I made a very weird one um and then I made another sort of wrestling film where I had to wrestle myself uh I wrestled with a dummy uh a dummy of Tony Blair um (laughs) You said
0: that I without was... fiction. You said that as if it might not be true.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, well, it had a Tony Blair mask. In. Um, I do have a Boris mask to put on it, but I never made that film. Um, so yeah, I was trying to work out how you could make wrestling content without having anyone to wrestle. Yeah. And before, before all, before I actually learned how to wrestle, which I can't remember any of it now because I haven't done it and we didn't get that far before covid kicked in it was only a few weeks um i brought wrestling into drag performance i was doing so i have got a routine that i've done with a friend that we would like to reproduce it's about adrian street and has adrian street and his dad that famous photo that mm. jeremy della has often presented jeremy della is one of my favorite artists and so it you it has me dressed dressed as Adrian Street and I will send you images. Uh, (laughs) um, And um, because Adrian Street has released a lot of albums of music, I will have you know. So me lip syncing, doing drag as Adrian Street, then transforming into... And with his dad, transforming into Zoolander. Zoolander and Zoolander's dad had a similar relationship to Adrian Street and his dad. And then transforming from Zoolander into Ed Balls, who played Zoolander in one of his strictly come dancing dances. He was doing Blue Steel and all of this. Um, and his holding out for a hero dance that he did not as Blue Steel. That was, you know, as, as a knight. But I, I worked that into the routine, <laughs> and that also incorporated the fact that Ed Balls made a documentary series about travels in Trumpland. He was meant to be going back and redo doing a second series, like post Trump, but obviously COVID put paid to that. Um, where he did some professional wrestling as the British Bruiser. Hmm. Wow! So I kind of it all comes. My, my my drag is incredibly conceptual and a form of literature. Um, but I I draw things together that people perhaps hadn't thought of having relationships with each other, but very clearly do to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. I feel like I should do a shout out for um, another, a bit lit film with the brilliant Claire Warden, who is a um, wrestling researcher and also a co-producer of um, wrestling resurgence, an amazing company in the Midlands, which thinks really hard, I think about inclusion and who is excluded from traditional forms of of wrestling and the reason I bring Claire up is in her film uh, which you can find elsewhere on the a bit lit website if you search for it um she talks about Trump as a wrestler and you know wrestling yeah. was a really formative part of Trump's career but also that his political idioms his habits of giving opponents uh, ridiculous nicknames come straight out of the professional wrestling world she's really fascinating on that topic
1: um and yeah, yeah I mean he's in the hall. Whole- of He's in the Hall of Fame, which is why Balls did the did the wrestling thing. But also there's been quite a lot written about modern politics being like professional wrestling, not just Trump, but the fact that you have heels and faces, that you have chants, that the audiences are primed to react in certain ways, particularly events. I mean, I've been doing a bit for the book about rallies and sort of the history of rallies. Again, going back to the Romans and the mob, and all of that kind of thing. But if you look at the way that Mosley used rallies, it, it's really fascinating because lots and lots of politicians of lots of different political stripes have built off what he did around rallies that bears a lot of resemblance also to professional wrestling. And I went to a Brexit party rally, sort of peak 2018. Brexit vote chaos. Um, I went to I went to the Brexit Party rally and the next day I went to a people's vote march. So it was, you know, both ends of the spectrum. But that was full on wrestling. Like that they had the lights, mm. they had the intro music, they had stuff flashing up on screens. Um, Richard Tice came on to 20 statues kids skits. like um, I think Farage came on to the final countdown. People were screaming and waving flags for Anne Widdecombe, who was also mm-hmm. striding the stage like, like a heel.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel I should say for listeners who are not familiar with wrestling terminology, that when you say politicians are faces and heels, and they'll be thinking, well, everyone goodies has...
1: Goodies and baddies, goodies and baddies. <laughs>
0: good guys, bad guys, good guys, bad guys. <laughs> I guess the other thing, too, we should wrap up in a moment, I should say, Phoenix, but I guess the other thing, yeah. too, is that um, uh, the last... Six years in particular has felt really inhospitable to female leadership. Even even in places like the UK and Germany, which has had female leadership, it feels like Brexit and Trump have has really promoted a very particular kind of aggressive male voice. Not just in the shape of Brexiteers and Trump, but just in general seems to have kind of.
1: It's all about strong man yeah. culture. So it's it's not even just male; it's a particular yeah. form of performing masculinity um that's uh, yeah aggressively heterosexual in most cases yeah that's you know P- putin was doing it but mm-hmm. then now it's like the norm
0: yeah yes
1: that that's just that's just how it is and you e- even people who are gay within that are performing ultra mask i guess on the brexit side you know darren grimes and people like mm-hmm. that um tom harwood but um also i think sort of in the media side if we're going to go round it off with a bit of public like publishing (laughs) the anti-stone wall the charity for people who are outside the uk it's our major lgbt charity um campaigns in the uk involve people involve people who were founders of Stonewall, and yes, they were there, but there were quite a lot of people at the start of the Stonewall charity in the UK. And there are some of those people who are very, very anti-trans, who are also who are also really kind of anti-same-sex marriage and anti a lot of things. They were really only interested in certain forms of queer liberation. Yep. And now when they write columns, people like Simon Fanshawe and Matthew Paris, They are doing war on woke, culture wars type stuff in a very aggressively masculine Mm. way. Mm. Oh, you're erasing the lesbians, says man. Um, While also kind of complaining about gypsy Roma traveler people, complaining about fundamental rights. That was Matthew Parris's last one. Um, Complaining about people's attitude to history you know that they're performing a very acceptable cultural strongman version of gayness and even the lesbians kind of involved are also stridently kind of like that they're policing what you should be as a person.
0: Meanwhile Phoenix we've got you fabulously burnishing how to be a very successful failed polymath so um uh, i'm really <laughs> pleased that for this film we've platformed yourself and not any of the people we've just been discussing um, i'm sorry to sh- cut us short i i wonder if maybe we need to have many many sequels to this film we need to bring you back for bottoms and goats uh at some
1: point oh, yes we need to do a whole series on buttocks <laughs> <okay>. I-
0: i'm <laughs> fine with that uh, really wonderful to speak to you for now though thank you so much
1: thank you